League fell short in terms of increasing the number of minority head coaches this offseason, admitted he has no solutions for the league's hiring practices, said he's invited outside experts to consult on possible ways forward. If 76ers point guard Ben Simmons doesn't get his trade request granted by tomorrow's NBA trade deadline, Senator Joel Embiid says he'll be welcome back to the team, but Embiid made it very clear it'll be up to Simmons to show he wants to be part of the Sixers. Don't be surprised if Simmons stays put, says ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. I do think there's a willingness in Philly to not just give, in their minds, give Ben Simmons away, just do a deal to do a deal here at the deadline um, when they believe that there there are more you know very prominent players they possibly could get at for him in the offseason, starting with Harden. Woj on Greeny. Harden, as in Netscar James Harden, continues to be a topic of trade speculation ahead of the deadline. The Canadiens have fired coach Dominic Ducharme. Montreal dead last in the league. For Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Get at us on the Canny call in line, 888-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Who has the best quarterback in Super Bowl 56? We've been having that conversation all show long. We want to invite you to chime in on the Canty call in line. Also get at us on the Twitter at AmberW790 at ChrisCanty99. But Amber, we got to get into Roger Goodell's comments in his annual State of the League address that he gives every year ahead of the Super Bowl. And, of course, we talked about the Brian Flores class action suit. We had you on last week. And you discussed a lot of the allegations, the claims that Brian Flores made. And we all agreed that the allegation that had the most teeth potentially, if Brian Flores did have the receipts, was the one that he made against Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, where he alleged that Stephen Ross offered him $100,000 per loss in the 2019 season, which was Brian Flores' first season as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins in an effort to tank and we have Roger Goodell responding to the questions surrounding the Brian Flores accusations about tanking down in Miami. Integrity of the game is obviously an important element, uh, just as making sure we have the right uh, culture in our organizations across the league and at clubs. Um, but we are going to look into that, and we will make sure that um, either our, if there were violations, that they won't be tolerated. I couldn't speculate on what they'll be. Uh, because we'll have to find out what the facts are. What, what What's the outcome? And when we know what those facts are and the impact it has on our game, we'll deal with it very seriously. Now, I, Amber, there, there, was, there was the report that Cameron Wolf from the NFL Network did have a witness that corroborated what Brian Flores had said about the offer that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross had made to him, $100,000 for every loss. So there is that that's floating out there, but... The thing that strikes me with Roger Goodell's commentary is that when Brian Flores filed the class action lawsuit, I'm just surprised that the blanket statement from the league said that his claims are without merit, but now we hear a subsequent investigation into the claims that Brian Flores was actually making. Now, of course, including the Giants and the Denver Broncos as a part of it, but also with the Miami Dolphins understanding the importance of the integrity of the game and maintaining a competitive balance. It feels like the league should have taken a different approach when it comes to trying to address these allegations initially. And because they didn't, it automatically feels like they're in this defensive posture. And I don't know that they're overly concerned with getting to the bottom of this. 
Yeah, when you had me on last week, you had me on as a lawyer, and I was telling you that from a legal perspective, perspective, I actually didn't think this allegation held much weight. In other words, it's not really pertinent to the allegations in the lawsuit or the four counts in the lawsuit as it pertains to racial discrimination. But I felt like this one had the most teeth in terms of NFL ramifications, right? Because mm. we're talking about integrity of the game. The problem is, Chris, that at the end of the day, what are we talking about here with this allegation? We're talking about Stephen Ross's desire to draft Joe Burr. And we're talking about Stephen Ross's alley because there was another allegation in there about tampering as well that could have some teeth in terms of integrity of the game. Right. And that was his desire, allegedly, to get Tom Brady. So those two things, if I just tell you in a vacuum that Stephen Ross wanted Joe Burrow and Stephen Ross wanted Tom Brady. I mean, I don't think you would think either of those things are that crazy. And of course, now uh, with the benefit of hindsight, he would look even smarter to desire Joe Burrow as his draft pick. Obviously, the Dolphins did not end up with the number one pick in that draft. Joe Burrow was not even an option for them. And that's why they end up drafting Tua. But from the desire perspective, the problem that I see the league runs into here is that there is a reward then for tanking. Like if that is your desire, then there is a way to accomplish that goal by, you know, not winning games. And you always have an integrity uh, situation potentially when there is a reason to do the tanking. You know, there's no lottery system here. Like there is in some other sports where you can kind of obviate this problem by leaving it up to some ping pong balls or something. This is directly correlated to how many games you win and lose. And so there is then a reason for teams, unfortunately, to not win games if they're up for a number one draft pick and if the draft pick works out the way that Joe Burrow ends up working out for the Cincinnati Bengals that's a real integrity of the game problem I'm not saying I I you know give credit to the they're all allegations we have no idea if they carry any weight but I'm saying that potential is there for that to be a true situation whether it's with the Miami Dolphins or not certainly just in terms of the NFL generally you could see why owners would be encouraged to tank well, well, Amber, and I, and I want you to keep your lawyer hat on for just a moment because isn't it criminal if that was in fact the case that Stephen Ross did offer Brian Flores a hundred thousand dollars to lose games? Doesn't that doesn't that fall into some kind of criminal uh, criminal code when it comes to you know sports bribery? I, I'm just confused as to the the severity of the allegations in in the Brian Flores class action suit and the potential implications. Uh, that that the Dolphins could be facing, and Stephen Ross in particular, if there is merit to those claims. I think it's really, really unlikely uh, that it would that it would rise to that level of incriminality under any of the statutes. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's really unlikely. And then a lot of people will cite, you know, the gambling type situation as well, because that can get into some hot water, uh, legally speaking. However, uh, those statutes have been written since these allegations, since that time, some of them making it illegal now uh, and some of them giving culpability to owners if, in fact, they were to do something that ruined the integrity of the game in terms of their liability to actually gamblers. But from that perspective as well, generally speaking thus far, that hasn't attached a meaning that on the criminal in the criminal front. No, I, I, I believe that that is a long shot to say that it rises to the level of criminal. And then on the civil front, a lot of people say, well, they're going to get sued by every gambler, you know, whoever, whoever bet on the dolphins kind of thing, or they'll be, <laughs> they'll be sued by the sports books and whatnot. And that's probably highly unlikely as well, because typically 
speaking, they don't owe any duty. There's no duty between the teams and the league and, say, gamblers, right? That's that's sure. certainly previous to a lot of this new gambling legislation where we're legalizing it everywhere, but that's been, traditionally speaking, how it's worked. So, no, from a legal perspective, I don't, again, think that this allegation, frankly, rises to much. However, that doesn't mean it's incredibly damning in terms of the NFL itself. I mean, you could be talking about an owner being stripped of his ownership, certainly, if something that uh, profound, I think, in terms of the integrity of the game was proven. Yeah, and then beyond that, just the undermining of the entertainment product as a whole because you can't refute the correlation between the evolution of sports gambling in multiple states with the growth and popularity of the NFL. I mean, you look at some of the conference championship games, some of the playoff game ratings, you're talking about games that have been the highest rated in their respective rounds throughout the course of the postseason in the history of the game. So I think that's also something that Roger Goodell and the other owners have to factor in when they do these investigations and they try to get to the bottom of what Brian Flores was alleging with that. But then we also had Roger Goodell talk about the lack of diversity when it comes to head coaches in the National Football League. And here's Goodell on why there is a lack of minority head coaches around the NFL. We look at the same numbers, and, and uh, they're, they're really part of the effort that, again, looking at how do we become more effective in our policies and procedures. Um, we work really hard. We believe in diversity. We believe in it as a value. We believe it's made it stronger. Uh, people who have come into the league who are diverse have been very successful and made us better. Uh, and we just have to do a better job. Uh, we have to look, is there another thing that we can do to make sure we're attracting that best talent here and making our league inclusive? Um, if I had the answer right now, I would give it to you. I would have implemented it. Uh, I think what we have to do is just continue and find and look and step back and say, we're not doing a good enough job here. Well, Amber, I think that's obvious. When I came into the NFL in 2005, there were six black head coaches, and today we have three. So there's a problem in terms of diversity, particularly when it comes to minority coaches, especially with black head coaches. And I think that the NFL really doesn't have an excuse as to why they haven't done more over the course of the last couple of decades. They have every resource available to them. I think the fact that we don't have more black head coaches is reflective of owners not being willing to move outside of their comfort zone when it comes to some of these hires. Well, and one of the problems you have is that the average ownership, I think, in the NFL lasts something like 32 years. And so if you have owners in power who are not comfortable maybe hiring outside of their own social circles or what they're comfortable with or, or you know, whatever they grew up around or whatever it is that they see in these other candidates that maybe don't look quite like themselves, then you're going to have an issue because there is no turnover there. And so you need this generational turnover or you need something to institute it where the Rooney rule may have been a, a good idea, but certainly hasn't been effective. Like you mentioned, we've seen no growth in this area since it was instituted 20 years ago. No doubt it's is going to be an ongoing conversation throughout the rest of the NFL offseason. But coming up next, one of my former teammates and one of the NFL's very best tight ends joins the show. This is Amber Wilson, Chris Canty, ESPN Radio. Canty and Golick Jr., the podcast. This is ESPN Radio. For Wilson and Chris Candy on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. We've been having the conversation all show long 
about which team has the edge at the quarterback position. Hit us up on the candy call in line, 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. Let's go out to Chris in Pennsylvania. Chris, you're on with Amber Wilson and Chris Candy. What you got? Can you hear me? We got you loud and clear. Uh, yeah, listen. Oh, cause, so listen, if the Rams lose, if they lose this, this game, how would this affect them in terms of, like, money and cap space? Because they do got a lot, of, a lot of veterans on their team. Thanks for the call. Oh, well, yeah. Well, Chris, the answer to that is the Rams will figure out how to push the salary cap hits for all of their star players in the future years whether it's restructuring contracts, pushing money into future years, contract extensions. There's a lot of different creative things that Les Snead can do in order to keep the core of this team together. In fact, I think one of the first orders of business for the L.A. Rams this offseason is signing Matt Stafford to a contract extension because, Amber, I got to think in year one of this marriage between Sean McVay and Stafford, it's been a huge success. I don't know how you could view it otherwise. I know insiders will tell you that this narrative, this Super Bowl or bust narrative that we kind of all have here on the outside, LA insiders will tell you that that's not really the reality there for the Rams, that they will bring back Avon Miller. They will bring back Odell Beckham Jr. Those are guys who have indicated that they want to be in Los Angeles. So this idea, like you said with Matt Stafford, so this idea that they can't run it back appears to be overstated and something that we're kind of all doing here because of the way that that group came together. Well, let's go to somebody that knows a thing or two about playoff football and being able to have some success. I want to bring in my former teammate, Pro Bowl tight end, and this year's Raiders nominee for Walter Payton Man of the Weir, Darren Waller. And, and Darren, I want to ask you first and foremost about your head coach, Josh McDaniels. This job was viewed as one of the premier job vacancies around the National Football League. I know that you guys have been through a lot this season, but I got to ask, have you spoken to Josh McDaniels, and what have been your impressions of your new head coach? Oh, yeah, what's going on, guys? Appreciate you having me first and foremost. But, yeah, I, uh, I met with Josh and Dave a couple of days after they got hired, and I thought I had a great conversation with them just as far as you know, them getting to know me and getting to know the culture that's been around this team for the past few years and uh, just how we learn and how we do things and just – you know, talking scheme with those guys, so I, I was very impressed with them initially. Darren, Chris mentioned that you were his former teammate. Obviously, you're a seasoned vet at this point. You've been in the league for a minute, but the way you came into the league, having to change positions from receiver to tight end, and then kind of your come up here over the years and, and to this point where obviously you've just been crushing it. So can you talk a little bit just about the transition of your career and when you started feeling really, really comfortable in terms of your position at tight end in your NFL career? Uh, yeah, so my career has definitely been a lot of change, a lot of transition, a lot of diversity. Um, you know, as far as playing tight end, you know, I thought I could do some things well while I was in Baltimore, but it was just a matter of consistency and just confidence on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I didn't really feel comfortable per se until, you know, I was in a practice squad with the Ravens in 2018 after I got reinstated. I was really kind of building my confidence, and I was really just in, comfortable in my own skin as a human being. And so from there, I knew, like, I could still play the game and that, you know, if things worked out in my favor, that I'd be able to have another opportunity and I would take advantage of it. And so that's what happened when I got the opportunity to go to the Raiders. Darren, the person on the other side of all of those receptions that you're making in that Raiders silver and black is Derek Carr. Can you talk about the job he did, not only 
from a production standpoint on the field, but in the locker room and in the community with all the adversity that that organization faced throughout the course of this past football season? Uh, yeah, I mean, Derek is uh, one of my favorite guys we've ever played with. Uh, just his focus, like you said, through all the adversity and being the leader that he is, but also, you know, with the, you know, people have been putting his name in trade rumors and, you know, do we get rid of him? Do we keep him for the past few years? And just him maintaining his focus and his play and his leadership style only improving throughout all those things, I think, speaks volumes to, you know, just how much he cares about the game and how much he cares about all the guys on the team. Las Vegas Raiders tight end Darren Waller on with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty here on ESPN Radio. So, Darren, since we're talking about leadership, I have to bring up the lack of minority leadership in the NFL. It's a huge topic this week coming off of that Brian Flores class action federal lawsuit that was filed, and Roger Goodell was addressing it today as well. So I have to ask you, the lack of diversity at head coaching in the NFL, what are your thoughts on that topic and what the league has done thus far? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that needs to be talked about and needs to be addressed because there are a lot of talented black assistants and guys that are in the ranks that deserve those opportunities to be in those leadership positions. So I believe that it's a conversation that needs to be open and honest and candidly, especially with the league side as far as, okay, what are we actually doing? We're, we're putting inspire change on the back of helmets and in the end zones, but you know, what are we really doing to give these people opportunities to reach their maximum potential. Um, so I feel like more needs to be done and just more conversations need to be had, you know, where both sides can, you know, be honest and open about where they're at and what can be done better and go from there. Darren, your team fought your way into the playoffs with a thrilling week 18 win over the Chargers. And then you guys lost in Cincinnati in the wild card round, that team finding their way to the Super Bowl. Give us your scouting report on the Cincinnati Bengals and how you think they would fare against the Rams in Super Bowl 56? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll start with them decent defensively uh, going up against the Rams. I mean, they don't have a name that's like incredibly sexy to the normal football watcher, but they're very good on every single level of the defense. You got, mm. you know, Trey Hendrickson, who's, you know, top five in the league in sacks, uh, linebacking core, Pratt and Wilson are, very solid. Um, I feel like their corners, Eli Apple's probably playing the best he's played in his career. Uh, Wuzier has been a good corner for a long time. And uh, then you look at, as far as safety tandems, Bates and, and Bell are as good as it gets in the league. So they just have a very solid unit as far as talent in every single level. And then offensively, I mean, everybody knows Joe Burrow and, you know, the receiving core that they have. Uh, Chase Higgins, uh, even Tyler Boyd, who's been you know, nothing but consistent over these years, even when Cincinnati wasn't very good. You got Joe Mixon, you know, I feel like they, if they can hold up offensive line-wise and pass protecting, they, uh, I really like them in the, in the game on Sunday. Darren, I know we've talked a lot about football, but you are the Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee for the Raiders. You also have your podcast called The Comeback Story. Can you tell us a little bit about both uh, as we wrap up here? Um, yeah, yeah. Comeback Stories is a show I co-host with my man Donnie Starkins. Uh, we really like to look at, you know, people that have been in areas of success, but sharing the message that they wouldn't have been where they are or enjoy the life that they live without having to face some sort of adversity. And just that common theme of how adversity really is the gateway to the life that you want to live with purpose, with meaning and all those things. So we really want to bring that level of content to people on the 
on a weekly basis. Well, we appreciate a few moments of you. Continue to do the great work that you do in that community and continuing to use your voice to help others find their way uh, out here. Darren, really, really proud of the work that you've done on and off the field, my friend. We'll catch up soon. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, Chris and Amber. Means a lot. All right. That is Pro Bowl tight end Darren Waller from the Las Vegas Raiders. And, of course, the Raiders nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award this season. So, fingers crossed I'm rooting for Darren that he brings that uh, that trophy home this year for all of the work that he does out in the Raiders community. But coming up next, your calls on what quarterback has the edge in Super Bowl 56. Plus, we'll take a look at some of the prop bets from the Bengals receivers and where the best value is. It's Amber Wilson. It's Chris Canney, ESPN Radio, back after this. Christine Lisi. Next season, the NFL will host a regular season game in Germany for the first time ever. It is one of five regular season games to be played internationally next season. Three others will be played in London and one in Mexico. The NFL says the Washington Commanders hiring of an investigative firm won't stop the league from conducting its own investigation into sexual harassment allegations made against team owner Dan Snyder. One day before the NBA trade deadline, ESPN's Dave McMenamin reports the struggling Lakers believe their roster's not working. Something needs to be done to get the team back on track. Coach Frank Vogel, Russell Westbrook have each gotten plenty of heat, but somebody else deserves blame too, believes first take host Stephen A. Smith. We cannot let LeBron James off the hook on what is transpiring in L.A. LeBron looks like an MVP when he's balling in terms of his numbers, but in terms of that roster, that's LeBron James' roster. He can't get he doesn't get a pass on what we're seeing because he's the one that helped formulate that roster. Lakers have lost 10 of 15. They're three games under 500, ninth in the West. The Canadiens, last in the NHL, fired coach Dominic Ducharme. They've named Hall of Famer Marty St. Louis as his replacement. Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. Chime in on the conversation we've been having on what quarterback has the edge in Super Bowl 56. The number is 888-SAY-ESPN. Again, that number is 888-729-3776. But Amber, one of the things that we've been doing on the show leading up to the Super Bowl is going through some prop bets because we all know that that's going to be front and center when it comes to people putting a little bit of coin on the Super Bowl. And so we figured we'd run through some of the prop bets, some of the over-unders on the totals for the skill position players for the Cincinnati Bengals. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So, total receiving yards. We're going to start with Joe Mixon out of the backfield. The over-under is at 25-and-a-half. Are you going to go over or under with Joe Mixon on receiving yards? Mixon has been averaging 18-and-a-half receiving yards per game, grabbing, what, 42 passes for 314 yards and a few touchdowns there. So it's not, like, completely outlandish to take the over on this one, but I'm taking the under, even though Joe Burrow has been throwing the ball more. And I know that there's a prop out there with Mixon that everyone's freaking out about, about longest reception, because apparently the odds are insane. But I'm out on that one, too. I'll take the under on this one. I'm going to go over, so we're we're at odds on this one. And the reason why I'm going over is because in order to slow down that pass rush for the L.A. Rams, i got to imagine that the Cincinnati Bengals, Zach Taylor, they're going to throw a lot of screen game in there. And Joe Mixon as a threat out of the backfield to catch the football and do some damage in wide open spaces I think could be a, a, an X factor as far as the Cincinnati Bengals offense goes. Not somebody that you would expect to be a huge factor, but I think his run-after catch on in the screen game could be a, a, a mitigator of that pass rush for the L.A. Rams. So 
We're on odds with Joe Mixon, but we're going to keep this pushing. T. Higgins on receiving yards over under at 68 and a half. What you got? Well, Higgins has at least 96 yards in each of his past two games and in six of his past nine. So this actually seems low to me then that the line is set at six and a, uh, 68 and a half here, like you mentioned. But I guess the difference there is apparently there's this discrepancy between how he plays against zone compared to how he plays against man. And I know the Rams have played the second most zone coverage of any team this season. So maybe that factors in here. I'm still going to take the over on this one. I know that's a popular play, but I'm taking over here because it just feels low to me at 68 and a half. Amber, you and I are usually on the same page, but I can't believe we're 0 for 2 and we're just playing this game. But this is yeah, how you I, sports I'm, radio, you know? I, I, we don't I'm, have to I'm agree. A, I love it. A, a, Amber, I'm on the under when it comes to T. Higgins because you're right. The Rams do play a ton of zone defense, and I think the place that they can get got is in the middle of that field, and that's usually Tyler Boyd and C.J. Uzuma territory. So I look for Joe Burrow to target those guys early and often. That's going to take some touches away from T. Higgins. So I'm going to go under on the 68.5 yards receiving for T. Higgins. Keeping it pushing, we got to talk about the main man, the number one receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. That would be one Jamar Chase. Now, last game against the Kansas City Chiefs was the first playoff game where he didn't crack 100 yards, but he did have a touchdown in that matchup against that Chiefs defense. So his over-under on receiving yards is at 79.5. Which way are you leaning with this one, Amber? Well, you mentioned the 100 yards. I mean, that's seven games with more than 100 yards he's logged already this season. 85.6 receiving yards per game he's averaging. I am taking the over on this one. Jamar has to ball out on that stage, break all sorts of records. Let's do this, Jamar Chase. Over. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, Jamar Chase, as well. You you really got to play a lot of man coverage to slow him down. If you look at what happened in that AFC Championship game, the Chiefs were around 40 to 45% man coverage in that matchup as opposed to the week before against the Tennessee Titans where that defense was around 70% zone. So I think there's a clear difference in terms of the yardage and the production you get from Jamar Chase, man versus zone. There are going to be a lot of opportunities for catch and run with Jamar Chase, and we know Joe Burrow has no problem finding his main man, and Jamar Chase has no problem hitting the home run from anywhere on the field. So I look for at least one of those big plays from Jamar Chase on a slant or an in-breaking route where he catches it and he does some serious damage with Yak. So I like the over on Jamar Chase, 79.5. Okay, let's reset. We're playing the Cincinnati Bengals over-under prop bets when it comes to the skill position core. And so, Amber, we just did the total yards. Now we got to do total receptions. And so – Jamar Chase, we said he was going to go over on the 79 and a half yards receiving. Where are you at on the total number of receptions? Because that's right now at five and a half. Yes, and with Jamar Chase, since I was so emphatic about him going over there, I'm going to stay here on the over in terms of total receptions. Okay, yeah, I'm with you on that one. I stay, I'm staying there on the over. Zone coverage, a lot of guys playing off. That means plenty of opportunities for Joe, Joe Burrow to target Jamar Chase, his favorite guy. It's not necessarily going to be like he's going to be denied entry into the pattern. I don't see a lot of press coverage for the Rams defense because they just don't have the guys outside of Jalen Ramsey to play that kind of scheme. So I think Jamar Chase does have a lot of catches in this matchup. I'm going over as well. Okay, for Joe Mixon, total number of receptions over under three and a half. What you got? 
I guess I'll go under for this one uh, because I was taking the under uh, in terms of yards as well. I think that Joe Mixon needs to run. Uh, I think that that's going to be a key component here, even if that O-line is shaky. So I'll go under in terms of receptions, even though I know Burrow's been trending that way, getting him involved more in terms of receptions. Okay, Amber. So I, I'm going opposite of you this on this one. I'm going over on the three and a half receptions, and a big part is the screen game. But I also can see Joe Mixon doing some damage on some angle routes out of the backfield, being able to isolate him one-on-one with those linebackers with Troy Reader uh, in company in the middle of that defense for the Rams and take full advantage of that, being able to dump it off. It gives Joe Burrow another safety valve in the middle of the field. I think Joe, Bur- Joe Mixon can do some serious damage in that. So I'm going with over on that one as well. Okay, total number of receptions. T. Higgins, over under five and a half. Which, what you got? I think Jamar Chase is going to draw Jalen Ramsey uh, in terms of coverage, right? So I guess that might free up T. Higgins a little bit in that respect. So I do think Higgins is going to get targeted in this game. I think that's going to have to be the case in order for the Bengals to be successful. So I guess I'll go over at five and a half. I don't feel great about it. Never been a betting woman a day in my life, Chris Canty. So everybody take my advice uh, as they will with caution, but I'll go over on this one at five and a half. Okay, I'm going under on this one. Again, I think that the other guys in that receiving core are going to take targets away from him. Joe Mixon, C.J. Uzuma, uh, looks like he's going to play. And then, of course, Tyler Boyd. So I'm going to go under with T. Higgins on five and a half total receptions. Now, Amber, the last one we got on deck is the total rushing yards for Joe Mixon. Now, I feel like based on what you've already said, I've got an idea of which way you're going to lean based on the game script that you think is going to play out. But the over-under for rushing total yards for Joe Mixon is at 62.5. Which way are you going with this? I mean, this man's almost averaging 71 per game. I will definitely take the over on this for Joe Mixon. Let's let runners run. I hear what you're saying. I just don't think runners are going to run with Aaron Donald and Von Miller and Leonard Floyd up front. I'm just saying. I don't know if throwers are going to throw with those guys up front either. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But you got to move the football some way. And I just don't think the Rams defense is going to allow Joe Mixon and company to make a living on the ground. So I'm going to go under. I'm going to fade Joe Mixon, although I don't like living in that space, doing that to him. But I just don't see it as one of those games where he's going to run roughshod over that Rams defense. But this is. Over under prop bet style with Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the Giants finally listen to me, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. This is ESPN Radio. Dr. George F. Grant was not looking to make history when he invented the golf tee. The Harvard grad and prominent dentist was simply trying to make a hard game a little less frustrating for his golfing buddies in Boston. Before the tee, Golfers had to carry buckets of dirt from hole to hole and build small mounds to place their golf balls. You probably had no idea that his invention would change golf forever. ESPN Radio celebrates Black History Always. Canty and Golick Jr., the podcast. This is ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Hit us up on the Twitter at AmberW790 at ChrisCanny99. And Amber, it's Wednesday on the show, so that means that it's time for another episode of People Don't Forget. 
Hey, Greg, why don't you go f*** your pants again? That was like eight years ago. People don't forget. Forget, 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 Okay, so Amber, this week we're kicking off People Don't Forget with the Tennessee Titans brass extending general manager John Robinson and Mike Vrabel. And, of course, Mike Vrabel, wildly successful in his first four years with the team, a record of 43-27, and 27, including the playoffs. And you're talking about their team having a winning record in those seasons. So I, I guess I got to put this out there. Like, are we undervaluing the type of head coach that Mike Vrabel is because he got bounced in the playoffs as the number one seed in the divisional round to the Bengals? I mean, the Titans certainly aren't undervaluing him, nor should they. Obviously, he we know about the AFC Championship in 2019, the appearance in that game, back-to-back AFC South titles over the past couple seasons. He was voted Coach of the Year by the Pro Football Writers of America this past season. You know, a 12-5 and team. I understand that the ending being disappointing for Tennessee fans, but there was a lot that that team dealt with this season in terms of injuries, and being able to keep that ship as as right as it was through those choppy waters, Chris, I was so impressed by the job that Vrabel did. Maybe even more impressed by the job he did this season than some of their more successful seasons during his tenure. So I would say that generally, perhaps, does he get undervalued? He's in Tennessee. They're not actually winning the AFC Championship. And so maybe that can get the narrative where maybe we forget a bit that, hey, this is a really excellent coach, but certainly that team is putting their uh, the the pen to the paper and extending him where they should. And things get a lot better in Tennessee. If Aaron Rodgers goes down there, Chris. <clears throat> wow. I, 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 listen, I, mean, I would love, saying, I, you know? I would love to see it. I don't know how they move that Ryan Tannehill contract. Good luck with that one. I mean, you're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get real creative. You might have to call in Mickey Loomis to do you a solid as a consultant to figure out what to do with that cap hit. But I'm with you on that one. The impressive thing about Tennessee is, they were pretty good against teams that we would look at as championship contenders. The Buffalo Bills, they beat those people. The Kansas City Chiefs, they beat them. They beat the Los Angeles Rams. I mean, in SoFi, and that score was 28-16. to And guess what, Amber? The game wasn't that close. They also have wins over the San Francisco 49ers as well. So, I mean, this is a team that was really, really impressive. And to me, outkicked their coverage based on the talent base that they have available to them and the quarterback that they have pulling the trigger. I'm just saying, Amber, don't kill the messenger, but Tennessee exceeded expectations, and a big part of why they did that was their head coach. But speaking of former Patriots, former New York Giants head coach Joe Judge has found his footing, and that just so happens to be back in New England. And, Amber, this was reported yesterday that Joe Judge is going to rejoin Bill Belichick's staff in New England as a consultant. He'll have somewhat of a hybrid role. But your thoughts on Joe Judge going to the NFL's equivalent of coaches rehab, kind of like what Nick Saban has down in Alabama. What do you think about him rejoining the Patriots coaching staff? Yeah, with Rabel, we're talking about exceeding expectations as a head coach. With Joe Judge, we certainly aren't talking about that. But now he goes back home, Chris, where he's going to be appreciated because he certainly was not appreciated during his <laughs> tenure in New York. You know, I, li- listen, it, it seems like he's a 40-year-old dude. Like, he's very young. You know, we know he was a wide receivers coach before he got that gig with the Giants. I think that this is another opportunity to go back where he was having success and where he was comfortable, and, and he can work his way up again, frankly. So, I don't make much of it. I don't know. Is it fr- 
franchise changing for the New England Patriots? No, but I do think it's probably a good thing for Joe Judge in the long run. Amber, I I can't get out of my mind the press conference that Joe Judge had when he was introduced as the head coach of the New York Giants when he said his team was going to play every play like it had a life and a history of its own and then juxtapose that to the back-to-back quarterback sneaks, especially the one on third and eight when they were on their own five-yard line against the Washington Commanders. I still don't understand how you can reconcile that, how you can make that make sense. I guess I'm on board with him going back to New England as long as he just doesn't have to get up in front of reporters and have a press conference. I'm just saying. Keep it as long moving. As he's not with your Giants anymore. Yeah, plus, th- thank goodness. I, uh, no question about it. That, that is a win for all Giants fans everywhere. But keeping it moving, Amber, and talking about the Giants, they go out and they hire defensive coordinator Wink Martindale. Now, Wink Martindale was relieved of his duties at the end of the season from the Baltimore Ravens, citing a difference of philosophies uh, in their parting of ways. But now he's on board Brian Dayball's staff, the new head coach for the Giants, under general manager Joe Shane. And I will say this, Amber, with Wink calling the plays on defense for the Giants, somebody's band is on play. It's either going to be a good thing for the Giants or it's going to be a really good thing for the opposing offense. But I will say this about Wink. In three of the four seasons he was defensive coordinator down there, the Ravens had a top three scoring defense. So certainly could be a step in the right direction for the Giants. He was up for head coach when they hired Joe Judge, right? I mean, I don't know if that was the right decision back then. I don't frankly know if this is the right decision now, but he's got 30 years of coaching experience, obviously 15 in the NFL. I mean, you tell me. We'll see where this goes. Absolutely. Coming up next, Roger Goodell and his thoughts in his State of the League address.